you can create data and just hand it somebody and and walk away. But I think one of our big focuses and and one of the reasons that we we try to really build and work with clients and organizations over the long haul is that you're actually able to to build and learn from the previous cycle and adjust how you do it, not just on the analytic level, but on a process and and a a people and a, a human level, which in some ways is even more important than actually just whether we can tweak an algorithm is actually making sure it's useful on on the ground. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. David Radloff has made a career at the intersection of progressive politics and analytics. He is co-founder and partner in Clarity Campaign Labs, which provides strategy, advanced modeling, and analytics services to Democrats and other progressive organizations. Clarity works directly or in partnership with Democratic Party committees to help campaigns and other organizations target their resources. David has a long career in politics and technology, including the Kane for Governor campaign in 2005, with a startup that provided volunteer management software, helping to lead a progressive nonprofit consulting group in the data modeling and analytics space. He also served America Votes as their director of data and targeting. David is a good guy with a successful firm. You should hear his story. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with David Radloff with Clarity Campaign Labs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, David. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Hey, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Well, my name is David Radloff. Um, work here at Clarity Campaign Labs, uh, one of the founding partners. We're coming up on Clarity's ninth anniversary. Pretty excited about that. Before that, uh, worked at an organization called ISSI. Also, that was formed out of our work at an organization called America Votes, which is actually um, still around and doing a ton of great work. Prior to that, I did campaign stuff, worked for the governor's race in Virginia in 2005. So now Senator Kane's governor's race there. Prior to that, I uh, did a bunch of um, corporate work and other technology consulting. Grew up in um, Virginia. Shenandoah Valley, if you're uh, familiar with that. So about, you know, two and a half hours. So it's it's pretty big difference, particularly now in the, the current polarized world that we're in. So it is somewhat of a world away from D.C., and our paths have crossed along the way, so we've gotten to know each other a little bit, which has been a, a great pleasure. We went off to school in Virginia, isn't that right? Yeah. Went to University of Virginia after 
living the, my whole life really in the Shenandoah Valley area there. And so, yeah, I went to school in Virginia. What did you study there? I uh, was a uh, foreign affairs and environmental science major. So, Do you think the major you pick makes a big difference in your career? <laughs> <laughs> for some people, yes. For, for me, no. Uh, and for many people, I think no. I believe the, the actual two things that I've used out of school are um, some random databases classes that I took that weren't related to either major or some statistics we got in environmental science. But it's really different now. The Talking to um, folks out of UVA and, and other schools, the data science programs that are available now are, are pretty interesting. I mean, I know UVA has a, a five-year undergrad plus master's of data science that's, um, you know, a, again, a, a world away from from what I had and would have been pretty interested in that. If I were doing well, it was, it was not a term, I don't believe, when... Certainly when I was in school. I don't know about when you were in school. Um, you're a bit younger. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it definitely not. Uh, we had the term data, but... Uh, and, and statistics was was certainly there. Yeah, I, I mean, our, t- our team that's, you know, we've been working with for a while here at Clarity, you know, used to call themselves analysts, senior analysts. Uh, you know, it's, that's shifted over to data scientists and, and titles of similar sorts, so... What was the first thing you did out of college? Was it the consulting stuff? Uh, yeah. Got the opportunity to interview for and ended up taking a, a job, a consulting job with PricewaterhouseCoopers out of New York. At that point, one of my goals to to live elsewhere than Virginia and, you know, try the the big city, so to speak, and, and get to travel and, and do a bunch of interesting work there. And so, uh, yeah, moved up to New York. And one of those jobs where you're, you know, flying out Monday morning, flying back uh, home Thursday to different project sites, and I uh, got a lot of great experience there. But you know, it was not what I really ultimately I think wanted to focus on. I'd always been interested in politics. Technology was something I'd always done and was doing in in that corporate work. But I think getting back into um, you know during the Bush administration and thinking about the Kerry campaign, really, I wanted to figure out how to get into political work, and there was a very early stages of, of data work at, at that point. So. Well, when I was a, a senior in college, some of the people went into consulting work like that. And my sort of group of friends, which was pretty politicized on the left, didn't think much of that. But later in life, I've found that people who had a grounding in that consulting world brought a lot of skills out of it, sometimes a knack for for jargon too. But what in your experience, both at Price Waterhouse and I think also at IBM, did you find useful later on in your career in politics and data? Yeah, Price Waterhouse Coopers, their consulting division uh, was acquired by IBM, so it was kind of same sort of job there. Again, from my perspective, you know, simply working in a hugely different environment than I ever had before, and very large organizations for multiple different clients. I think that honestly, given where I've ended up in terms of doing consulting, obviously for issue-focused democratic campaigns, that sort of thing, but that that project-based environment and the sort of business-oriented project-based environment and, and having that experience simply at a very large consulting firm itself was really helpful for fast forward a number of years later to actually working at a small consulting firm and trying to get you know, things started here and, and creating sort of structures that 
that makes sense. I think that just the the simple experience in a large business gave me a lot that I, at least from my background, wouldn't have had um, since I was just you know a totally different environment than than I grew up in. So, well, sometimes it also provides negative examples. Like there are things that you're like, if I were running this shop, I wouldn't do it this way, or the size. I wouldn't need to. Were there examples like that of things that you found I don't want to do? You know, it is a hugely different in, environment. I think the generally speaking, just simply the the size. I think you know, thinking back to to the work there, it's actually kind of cool. Um, you know, there, there was a a couple projects, good group team that we really enjoyed uh, working with. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with some of the other members of the team that how cool it would be to just have a small organization, uh, you know, 10 or, or so people. They really did great work and like uh, working with each other and, and were um, really smart and, and good at their work and how that would be really cool to have that sort of small operation. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I was actually really lucky enough to actually kind of have that now at, at Clarity. And I think that was that was pretty exciting. The other folks I was talking to, uh, I, I believe, um, are working at Amazon and Apple now, so they maybe went in a different direction. But at least for me, this was the, uh, you know, learning that that small team that we had within the bigger organization, that was the cool part. The bigger organization wasn't a particularly of, of interest to me in sort of dealing with the overall bureaucracy and and just having to work in, in that bigger environment uh, and, and not being able to pick what what projects you work on. I think that's how really lucky we are at having a small organization like Clarity and being much more issue and mission focused lets us pick to some degree what we work on. People sometimes who get into the consulting world don't want to leave it because you get good compensation, things like that. Tell me about the decision to leave that world and come into the political world. I'd been working there for about four years, I, I guess, and did some, weirdly enough, some kind of volunteer work in Virginia in the 2004 uh, cycle and kind of helped, you know, aggregate some data, set some stuff up. I pulled together a volunteer database there. It was just a, a very short period of time, just kind of on a volunteer basis while on on vacation. And then that that database, I think I ended up putting a, a password on it. And then they uh, ended up calling back when they were ramping up the 2005 race in, in Virginia and mentioning they were looking for somebody to do data and targeting work and also needed the password for that, that file that I'd set up. And so I ended up interviewing for the position with the Virginia Coordinated Campaign, working for the Kane campaign there, and got the job as a what the that time was kind of a combined technology, IT, data, targeting, everything role all in one, where you know, fixing the printers and and doing uh, data and working with voter files such as they were at the time was uh, was all one position, which was something we've you know since uh, in most cases I think uh, remedied and expanded out into a lot of different job roles. But that was really I think the opportunity to do it. I, I kind of hadn't really been looking I, I, to make the jump in a formal way. I didn't really know how, but that sort of opportunity weirdly fell in my lap, and you know ended up able to do that and have been working in this space ever since. What was it about the new work, the intersection of tech and politics and data and, and analytics 
that attracted you so much that turned your career in that direction? It was mostly just an opportunity to work on something I had a skill set that could be helpful on in the campaign and, and political space. I don't know that there, to be totally honest, I don't know that it was anything uh, specific uh, with the actual data and, and technology work as much as I really wanted to be involved in uh, political campaigns. And it, it seemed, frankly, like a, a good opportunity. You know, once getting in there, realizing there was a bunch of interesting new developments were happening. We had, you know, two different models in that cycle in 2005, the statistical models of, you know, zero to 100 scores of probability of supporting Kane for governor. And, and so the very, very early versions of that, and we didn't have a van system there at that point. It was a earlier sort of hodgepodge uh, uh, system in terms of we did palm canvases, actually, which involves sort of setting up some custom software and linking it into uh, the existing uh, database there. And so definitely had a lot of interesting, like pulling the wires apart and, and setting things up as we went. Uh, and so that, that I think has always been particularly interesting, having a variety of tasks, like jack of all trades sort of thing. People who worked for Kane seem to like him and it seems like they've gone a lot of different places in the in the ecosystem. Who did you run into in that campaign and any enduring relationships? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a ton of people around, um, you know, uh, Elizabeth Pearson ran the DGA for a long time. She was on that race. Um, Alan Moore runs um, his own mail firm. Bruce Sinclair has a uh, his own consulting firm as well now. So there's a, a huge number of people uh, out there in, in the space, I think, that from that race. I think it seemed like a, a bit of a, a turning point. There was a 2004, obviously folks were depressed after the that race and you know have winning the, the Kane race and, and such a big operation there and so many people are around the state because there really wasn't anything else going on to work on. And so you had a lot of people doing you know, field roles and canvassing roles that went on to have some really important leadership roles in the many years since then. What did you do next? At that point, you know, uh, obviously I was really excited about the work and, and working in campaigns. And so went to work at America Votes. And at that point, you know, they were in the midst of resetting up a national infrastructure around data and and uh, working with the the folks over at uh, Catalyst who were just getting started at that point on the, the voter file side of things. And of course, that's where I actually first met the uh, van side of uh, NGP van, uh, Mark and Jim there in terms of setting up a, a national van system for America Votes, which, you know, is still running and, and uh, working on a, actually national now. I think it was like six states at that point we were actually setting up something along those lines. So worked there for a bit. And that's actually where I met Dan Castleman, who eventually was one of the founding partners at Clarity. But he came on as a uh, additional data role, uh, helping out doing a bunch of uh, technical work and really a lot of ad hoc coding that we needed to do in, in AV to support the, the states. How were Mark and Jim at the van to uh, collaborate with? Uh, they were good. I, you know, they had a, had a great time. It was, it was, uh, I think, a uh, awesome meeting the two of them. They, they really, you know, were obviously those a long, <laughs> long time ago. They've, they've since uh, gone to travel the world and do all sorts of uh, interesting things, but it was a uh, really cool to work with them setting up that system. 
where I ran into you, I had a job. My only job right actually for a campaign was for Hillary in her 07, 08 run for president. And you showed up with a software product called yeah. the Donkey. <laughs> uh, that was a, a volunteer management system and amused me that the company name was Tiny Horse Solutions or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. well, how did that come to be? It's funny. That's It's been quite a while. Um, it was out of the, the cane race. I mean, I think we were, like I said, uh, early on I, in the quick volunteer gig in 2004, I had a volunteer database. And then the following year, I think we had just a number of different challenges actually tracking. Again, this was 2005, so there's a lot of differences now, but we had challenges tracking the volunteer data again. And, and so just, you know, talking to different folks who'd been on that campaign wanted to, you know, had an idea that we could build something. And this was, again, a couple of the folks that I work with, again, on the corporate technology consulting that we'd done and been on a project, actually, weirdly enough, um, for the uh, Disney down in, in Florida. There were two guys there and got together with with them and, and just sort of designed out based on that Virginia experience what a volunteer management system could look like and started building that, uh, all three of us, and sort of built that up really at a bunch of in the intervening time between the cane race and getting up and going on America Votes and built it around what people wanted at the time. Some of the people were going out on, on campaigns and, and set that up and folks started using that on sort of some small scale and then had in some of the presidential primaries as well, which obviously is, is how we met there. The tools long, long gone, you know, now there's such a focus on startups and, and tools and, you know, that area of things with VC funding and, and whatnot. But at, at that point, it was much more like a, just a, you know, ad hoc uh, consulting work that we we did and provided that tool as part of it. I learned a bunch there in terms of how not to to do uh, stuff. I think there's a lot of things we would have done differently now, but you know that was part of how we ended up where we are here with a different organization. So, what were those things that you learned? I think people rarely dwell enough on like on things that didn't. Well, it didn't become an enduring company. What advice might you give others based on that experience if there's anything that that uh, generalizes? Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's um, anything too earth shattering there, but I think one, making it a, a full-time endeavor is important. I mean, everybody says that. Uh, and there's a, I think that's a kind of a no-brainer, but that's not what we're doing. It was a, a side project for all three of us. And so, you know, building it into something bigger. And I think part of it is just, you know, each of the three of us actually didn't necessarily want to run that company as a, a full-time thing. And so that, you know, really ultimately meant it wasn't going to get. Sometimes big. you need someone driving it. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if maybe there'd been a, a fourth person actually wanted to, to run it and, and get it going, that could be pretty interesting and maybe would have gone uh, farther in that sense. But some of it is just figuring out how to, how to even set up a business and the really, basic stuff around accounting and, and whatnot and and actually <laughs> setting up the operations of a business in a in a useful and, and sustainable way. So when you haven't started a business, it's kind of mysterious. I remember before I did, I knew nothing. 
everything seemed pretty daunting to register with the state or to, you know, to incorporate or to start a instance of an accounting software or figure out what to track or how to pay people. All those things are hurdles when they're new. Yeah. No, absolutely. Again, we were small and, you know, we never actually had any payroll or, or staff beyond the people who were just part of the business or just consulting. But still, there's a there's a bunch of, of setup and, and whatnot. And I think I, that helped me down the road once we finally got to the stages of setting up Clarity into a real business where we do actually have a payroll and uh, a lot of different real systems. So. That time at America Votes, uh, which I think is 06, 07, I mean, can you explain to people what America Votes is and how it fits into the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. I mean, America Votes is a coalition of, I think, the largest uh, progressive organizations uh, out there. You know, everything, a lot of names folks know from environmental to labor to uh, equality and choice and, you know, the whole big tent of, of progressive issues. At the time, one of the things we were doing, and, and they've, I think, evolved in a number of great directions since then. But uh, at the time, uh, you know, it was a much smaller organization as well and was really kind of set up around getting some of the shared infrastructure together, like that van system. And those tools to collaborate were really focused on kind of having coordinated programs. You know, a lot of folks think of like the, the coordinated campaigns on the candidate and uh, hard side of, of things, but, you know, really trying to bring people together in, in a way and working off the same file and a lot of stuff that seems, I think, pretty rudimentary at this time, but in the 2006, 2007 timeline was, um, you know, was, a, I think, a, a pretty big deal and, and a, a good effort to kind of share resources around common goals. So it sounds like ISSI came out of that effort. What, is, what does that stand for? And what was that organization? Yeah, it was um, uh, Information Staffing Services Incorporated. I think uh, it was. Catchy. Yeah, it was. A, it was a solid, solid brand. Not to be confused with the um, space station or the uh, the terrorist organization, but the um, there's uh, C three and and C four tables um, in all the states and still are uh, America Votes and State Voices still running today. And it, it was really kind of an effort to, to share the data staffing infrastructure, just helping all the different organizations who don't have internal data staff. There's still, you know, a lot of smaller organizations. And so it was really around shared staffing resources. ISSI isn't around anymore, but the America Votes and State Voices tables still do provide, you know, really good staffing infrastructure and shared resources uh, for organizations in a, in a number of different states to use the file, use um, whether van or other tools across the, the technology space. And then as part of it, um, you know, we, uh, myself and uh, Dan Castleman and other folks, uh, Lee Hofford and Sean Dunkevich still uh, work with us here at, at Clarity, came on at, at ISSI and you know, started doing a bunch of analytic work as, as well. I think we saw an opportunity at, at that point to kind of help bring down the costs of, of some of that work and do some, you know, some data collection and actually create some models, enhance the targeting and different data available um, there and kind of got really into that. And then ultimately that, you know, a number of years later is what became uh, Clarity. What were the main changes that were taking place 
in that world of data and targeting? Yeah, I think it was one, I think, professionalization and actually having a number of different staff roles that aren't, you know, fix the printer and do uh, data work. I think the folks at America Votes um, were a big part of that, you know, actually putting data managers out in the States. It was, I think, six or so to begin with. I think that was a really big deal because there's actually support for folks in professionalized roles helping out with a number of organizations in the field. So I think that's part of it is just the the massive professionalization of data. And that doesn't just have to do with politics, obviously. There's sort of a revolution in data science going on in every industry, in sports and entertainment and, and everything, certainly in finance and so on. What's the founding story for Clarity? We're really focused on wanting to do that analytic work and actually create some of the, you know, we thought we had some good tools again. And I think uh, making analytics, statistical analysis, creating models, voter contact models, those zero to 100 scores that everybody uses now on, you know, every voter in the country or every voter in a state. We thought, you know, because we kind of came from a background of working with the really small uh, races where there's a lot of cost sensitivity and working with the smaller budgets, we had an opportunity, I think, to bring that to a wider range of organizations. And, you know, at the time, Tom Bonier, who now runs uh, TargetSmart, is the CEO of TargetSmart, uh, over there um, was looking for his next step out of NCEC. Folks, you know, obviously uh, older folks remember using <laughs> NCEC data quite a bit. They had the big precinct targeting yes, uh, data. Yes. They had collected election returns for the whole country. Having those aggregated election returns is actually still a really important thing. It's it's really helpful in input into uh, the models we do. And, and that's something that um, actually in somewhat can be a challenge now uh, still. But but yeah, you know, with working with Tom, uh, working with the folks over at, at Target Smart, they were a much smaller organization at, at that point as well. And they had a bunch of analytic needs and, and didn't, you know, yet have in-house capacity. And so just kind of came together our little team with Tom and and the Target Smart folks and, and put together Clarity uh, in the very early iterations. Um, you know, one of some of our early work did uh, have done a ton of work over the years with uh, the uh, governor's races, DGA, um, you know, did a, a number of uh, smaller scale projects, in particular around uh, some IVR polling, which is, you know, definitely not the wave of the future now, but going back to even to 2008, um, you know, setting up some lower cost ways to gather data because these models take you know, so much data to be able to create and and being able to get 5,000 interviews in a particular place at a low cost um, was, I think, something that that we really had there and were able to to generate in a in a useful way that helped Clarity get going in a in a way that that actually brought some impact and cost savings to a number of different smaller organizations. For people who aren't close to it, it might be puzzling why you would need analytics in politics, why you need models, why you're talking about like assigning numbers to voters about, I don't know, their propensity to vote or things like that. Why is this part of what happens now in campaigns and in politics? Many folks would argue now we, we use 
too much data <laughs> sometimes. I, I'd even argue that my, myself at a, a couple points. But at the base level um, where it started, I think Virginia is a going, good example going all the way back to 2005. And, and still, Virginia is a, a state where there's no party registration. And so at a very basic level, if you have a, a voter file in Virginia, you don't know who the Democrats and Republicans are. You don't know who the people who are likely to support your candidate are. People have stored ID data, field data, the contact data. That's what you know. Van was set up around doing and actually archived that and, and created aggregates of that ID data, as anybody who works in the space knows. But you then still only had information on people you'd actually spoken to. And so I think the, the really base level of that early analytics was actually being able to put a prediction of, are you likely to be a Democrat or Republican, a Kane supporter or not, on everyone on the voter file, not just the people that we have spoken to. And, you know, with the continuing decline of response rates and in getting a hold of folks, I think it becomes even more important. Now you have, I think, a different challenge then. You just simply didn't have enough data at that point. Now you have so much data that, you know, really great past archives of all sorts of historical data, whether it's the geographic data and just so many myriad of sources. And I think analytics now has a, a role of, you know, many of us would, would sit there and create so-called voter contact universes based on a number of different factors. And now there's so much data, you can't, you know, as a person really parse it and decide, okay, I'm going to use this criteria and that criteria. It's much easier to have a, an algorithm and someone, you know, really uh, handholding that algorithm so it doesn't go off in a, a weird direction, but actually focusing on it and creating uh, something that aggregates all that data into both a list of people you can contact, but again, rolling it up into, you know, different probabilities that let you, you know, really analyze a particular state and, and even ultimately rolling into kind of a planning tool for, for kind of a path to victory in a particular race uh, at, at a state level. So if you have these, you know, predictions of whether someone's a Democrat or not, or whether they're going to turn out or not, why does that matter? Turnout, you know, that's a great one. Uh, zero to 100 probability of you probably have a 98% chance on our, our model of turning out given your, your vote history. Uh, you know, it's really helpful in terms of creating a, a list of people to talk to either for get out the vote exercises, uh, GOTV, a list of people to talk to, to kind of get your campaign message out to, and particularly on, on down ballot races where, you know, we all think of the presidential race, but in many respects, things like ballot initiatives or down ballot races are where analytics can be even more helpful. Think of a, a ballot initiative where, you know, you can read it, I can read it, and, you know, we're in the political space. And sometimes you don't even know what, what does this actually do? And the basis of support on a, a ballot initiative, for instance, can be very different from partisanship. And so that uh, analytics can be really helpful in, in zeroing in on, okay, here is a set of people who are really highly likely to support us on this particular issue. Here are those that aren't. And here are the people who actually are really bought into the issue, but just need to understand a bit more about what it actually does, the messaging, the persuasion message. And so finding and, and segmenting out those audiences on one hand, and then 
segmenting out who's likely to vote versus not likely to vote. And, you know, many of these things can and have been done with just the data on the voter file and, you know, rudimentary factors like uh, age and race and gender. But, you know, you can really sort of synthesize up a lot of other data to make it more powerful. And decide how to allocate your resources. Yeah, you know, who, absolutely. who are you going to mail? Who are you going to phone? Who are you going to touch uh, at the door? What's fascinating to me, having been around campaigns for a long time now, at least technology around campaigns and such, is how new careers have been created. Like the digital strategist was not something that existed. The data scientist in politics. These are whole whole new fields in politics for a different type of person, I think, than necessarily might have been there back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's uh, been really interesting to see. It's still a space that I think rewards being able to do a bunch of different things and having a bunch of skill sets, but there's a lot more specialization now and a lot of roles that I think I would have been really excited to apply to if I were coming out of school right now. There would have been a lot more to look at. I probably wouldn't have gone and done the the corporate work just because there are are so many different opportunities now. And hopefully I would have been able to to find one that that fit in the time. But yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. So tell me about the development of Clarity as a company. How do you find business? How does it grow? So on. You know, as you know, it's a campaign world is a, a, a fairly small space. And so just working with folks over the years, uh, even going back to the to the donkey uh, volunteer system, actually working with them, you know, in a little bit different space, folks are still working out on campaigns and, you know, helping out with with analytic work. In the early days in 2012, uh, we did a ton of smaller scale projects and really, you know, small either uh, survey work that that wasn't sort of big enough to to rise to the sort of nor- normal polling solutions or just actually creating little local models and and statewide and is very ad hoc and I think part of the evolution over the over the years and and is that the party committees have you know helped sort of aggregate that work and get access to these tools in an efficient way for the, the different campaigns. And, you know, that over the few cycles of 2012, 14, 16, 18, and, you know, obviously now where we just were in, in 20, that's kind of helped, you know, also aggregate and professionalize some of the, the tools there. But really just talking to folks who are managing races and, you know, working with them on one race and then coming back the the next cycle in a different place um, because, you know, folks tend to, to stay in this space for a while and move around a lot. I think that's different than on corporate work is just the frequency and with which folks are on different races. My understanding is, and you sort of alluded to it, is that you guys were able to find contracts with some of the national party committees over time to produce this kind of modeling for all of their campaigns or a subset that they wanted to target. Is that the case now? Yeah, we were really lucky enough to work on all types of races and and with a number of the committees this this last cycle in 2020. Um, you know, our longest running work has been with the DGA, the Democratic Governors Association. They did a really great job early on of, you know, bringing 
these tools, we work with them and, and we're able to get some custom state-specific models and analytic work for their, their campaigns out into the field. They were able to uh, do that in an efficient way and, and provide it out toward the all the different governors, targeted governor's races. And that's something they've built over the years and in, internally at uh, the organization and other party committees have have done this as well. You know, we've just been really lucky to be able to uh, work with uh, a number of the, the committees and build from cycle to cycle. I think that's one of the the great things is you know taking what we learned and and looking at mistakes, looking at big wins, not in terms of winning the race, uh, but wins in terms of uh, things that actually provided value in terms of analytics and tweaking that and adjusting it. And I think that's been one of the things that's really important to uh, our overall business, which is helping Democratic candidates win races and helping progressive issue groups, is taking what we've learned in the last cycle and actually applying it, working with people at a sort of a human level and because you can create data and just hand it somebody and, and walk away. But I think one of our big focuses and, and one of the reasons that we, we try to really build and work with uh, clients and organizations over the long haul is that you're actually able to, to build and learn from the previous cycle and adjust how you do it, not just on the analytic level, but on a process and, and a, a people and a, a human level, which in some ways is, even more important than actually just whether we can tweak an algorithm is actually making sure it's useful on on the ground. Because I think, you know, I think you can appreciate it. You've done a, a lot of technology and development work over the years, but something that looks really great from a data perspective, from a technology perspective, a tool that seems like it would be really great. Sometimes when you actually put that in the reality of being on the ground in a campaign or the reality of just what the users actually do with, with it. Um, it's really not a good idea. It only looks like a good idea from a, you know, a, a step away at the technical level and translating that and, and moving things back and forth with a, a real uh, awareness of how, you know, things actually work and what people actually want uh, is a, is I think the key thing from our end in terms of long-term success. What's different between what you're bringing to party committees or, or campaigns or then what pollsters bring? What's the boundary there? What's the difference? Yeah, I think that there is a, a pretty big difference in a, a lot of respects. There's sort of two buckets. I think of the biggest distinction is around messaging and communications strategy. I've never moderated a focus group and i don't know that I ever will. I mean, it seems pretty interesting, but I would need to start at the <laughs> very ground level and and learn what to do. Um, and I do think, you know, even though we're very focused on the quantitative data and numbers, that qualitative focus group type research is, is really important. You learn a lot of things from that. And that's that's an area that's very squarely in the, the pollster camp and not on the analytics side. You know, we tend to focus a lot more on individual level work of, you know, putting predictions on the voter file and doing the models and creating that uh, analysis. Uh, you know, we need polling of, of a variety of sorts uh, from phone, from online, from SMS. We need data to create our models. And so there's it's it's linked there and we do we do polling to gather that data 
But I think the biggest distinction I would think about is, you know, the message crafting and, and guidance and that there's obvious overlap. And, and, you know, I think the, the best relationship is where, you know, some of the, the pollsters on the Democratic side that we work with and they've, you know, helped refine down a, a message to a particular, you know, one or, or two, a set that we can then take, run into our systems, gather more data on it, on those focused uh, issues, and then actually create some analytics around it to help target the field. On a good day, it's a, a very collaborative work, but that's the big distinction is I think around the, the, the message research front. So, Do you feel like you're close enough to the decision-making in these organizations from where you sit? Do you ever feel like you're not in the room enough or do you feel like you get enough of that in your job to be excited by it? Or do you care about that at all? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. I think that um, I've been really happy with, with how we've been able to expand the usefulness of the, the models that we've created to have a good strategic application. I think they do. And I think they bring a lot to the table there. And in, in recent cycles, we've done a lot of work around creating, um, you know, folks who have worked with our stuff on, on, you know, statewide level races will know our, our path to victory memos, which are heavily driven by the analytics and rolling up the individual scores into projections and predictions of where we stand with a race and then maybe where we need to grow to either get from a 48% to a 50% in a two-way race or, you know, the numbers we need to keep if we're lucky enough to be above 50 already in the sort of initial projection. And I think we're able to do a bunch of work and analysis that can can really help from the strategic approach. I mean, obviously we're working on the consulting side, so we're, you know, providing things to people who are actually doing the hard work on the campaigns and and running and at the committees and running the actual operations. And so we're always are a step away and that's that's where we should be. I mean, you know, we're not we're not the ones who should be running the the races, but I feel like over the years we've been able to really bring the analytics to campaigns in a in a way that does help with their their strategy. I mean, it's never going to be the thing that completely drives the strategy. I think that's one of our core philosophies is that combining that with the expertise of people who've just worked on campaigns and run them for for many years and combining that with the data is the right approach from from our perspective of using it at a strategic level. But but that's something that's evolved over the years as well because it did start as like analytics just helped you create a universe of people, you know, the 100,000 best people to talk to in terms of reminding them to vote on the Democratic side. But I think we've tried to expand that because I do think there's a, a lot of utility in looking at the data from the voter file for actually planning your race out in terms of your campaign strategic plan. Some of the political animals that really watch politics the way they watch sports, who frequent 538 and other poll aggregators have experienced in some of the recent elections surprise that Senate races were not being predicted accurately, that electoral votes in states went different ways than were expected, say, in 2016. And I think it's widely known that polling has been challenged by the Trump 
era and 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 uh, declines in response rates due to technology changes and all kinds of things like that. I think there have been times when we've had conversations near elections where it felt like the projections that were in your world competed awfully well with what public polling was showing, say, what's the difference there? How do you see kind of polling projections, uh, politics from that standpoint? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's always something that is particularly from a media perspective, an, an obsession of, you know, getting the horse race, right. Because it's, it's cool. It's public, you know, you see the data and you know what's going to happen before it happens. And that's, um, allegedly, that's, yeah. yeah, allegedly. Yes. And, and, and that's, exciting and particularly with the proliferation of data science and and those tools you can watch a, watch election forecasts in any number of ways on online now and that you couldn't um, and you know it's important obviously to know where the race is but it's it's more important in our perspective to look and have a good starting point 6 months out or even 12 months out from the election, you know, if you predict what's going to happen the week before election, that's cool from a media perspective, but it's not really relevant to campaign strategy and, and program in most cases, because most of the decisions have been made The you know, the mail has long been sent, um, you know, maybe you can tweak some get out the vote universes, but there's a lot of earlier deadlines and planning that happens to happen in the year or more before a race. That's really what what we tend to focus on on there. And, and generally, I think we have been, you know, using the right tool to answer the right question with, as you said, the declining response rates and challenges, different modes of communication, different, you know, segmentation, polarization, everything that's been going on that's uh, it's been talked about. You know, it is much harder to reach a representative sample. But a lot of times, you know, you're really looking at, you know, a 600 sample an 800 sample, even a thousand sample out of a large state, it's really, really challenging using any methodology at all, you know, any mode of communication online or in the phones to get a really solid set. And so a lot of times when you look from poll to poll, you're really seeing a lot of noise. And, and this is even just if we're running the poll, if anybody else is running the poll, it's, just, it's the same challenge. And so with the, the modeling as a tool to look at a projection, you know, we have a really short survey and a much larger sample. So we have a higher chance of reaching a lot of different types of people. And then we use the model and use all the different data that's available on, on a voter file and, you know, consumer data and geographic data and rolled up census data and election returns to aggregate that. And, and then that prediction on every voter in some ways just behaves as a really massive waiting scheme to actually deal with some of the challenges of not being able to reach the right number of, you know, the current obsession, you know, non-college educated uh, Republican men who are sporadic voters who are, you know, fairly hard to reach. And we know how many of those people are out there uh, because of the voter file and the, the models can help roll that up in a way that you don't get uh, from anyone's, you know, 800 sample uh, survey, let's say. And so I think that can can give us a, a 
a little bit better baseline of, of where the race stands. It doesn't tell us what we should say to people to convince them to vote for us or really give us any indication about the messaging. And so I think that, you know, that's where I say looking at the tools are really helpful. You know, we, we need to pull to, to learn about a number of different issues and what people think. But in terms of that prediction of, of where we think we stand, I think that's where the, the tools can be really helpful just because of the mass amount of data that we're dealing with uh, that you aren't on a, on a, a smaller survey. It feels like a lot of surprise in results had been around in, in two presidentials had been unexpectedly high turnout among Trump loyalists that you might not normally think would vote. We had high turnout too. Do you think you have an understanding of what was going on there that's different? From the turnout standpoint, um, that's an area that we have invested a bunch of research in over the last few cycles, really in particular 2017 forward, a turnout model uh, specifically, a turnout model from the perspective of a analytics uh, person, you know, is a, again, like I've said, a zero to 100 probability score on the voter file of likelihood to turn out. But there's a lot of different things that are turnout models. There's, you know, the, uh, the turnout model that somebody like Gallup uses in their polling to to actually focus. And so there's a myriad of different things that can mean. Um, in our specific application, we've been really happy with the, our results since 2017 on predicting, you know, having a good turnout model and actually, you know, having a good prediction of who's going to turn out on a state-by-state basis. That's one of the things I think we're, we're particularly proud of is our work that we've, we've put into there. So I think we have a good sense of who's likely to turn out. It's never perfect. I mean, the great thing though, is that you get the answer key at the end. You know, all of our, our work, you never really know who someone votes for, rightly, thankfully. Um, but we can't check our models and data except by gathering more data. But with a turnout model, we get vote history. It's public information. It's something that shows up on the voter files and you're able to see, okay, I did a good job. I did a bad job. I compare this, use a bunch of validation techniques and actually see two factors. One, did we just rank order is what we say, but basically line up people from most to least likely to turn out? And did we predict roughly the right number of people that are turning out. And those are sort of two different measures we look at. And, and on both counts, we've been, you know, really happy from an analytic perspective of, of our, our national turnout models in 2020 and in 2018. I think they've, they've really been uh, worked out well. I think there's a lot of applications that we can use those for. And so, yeah, on that count, I do think we have a better handle on who's likely to turn out using those models than uh, maybe using a, a lot of other methodologies. Prediction in politics is a, a tough thing to do. Human events are fairly chaotic. They're also pretty orderly in certain ways. And for people looking forward to 2022 and 2024, what would you say are the things that the big factors to think about in terms of which way the electorate will swing in those two races and why? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the tough part. And I think we need to get some more, you know, information as we go over the, the coming year here. Um, one of the things, and, and this goes a little back to your earlier question, but that, you know, in 2020, 
and I think it's one of the reasons why it was so challenging to to get representative samples. You know, you didn't need a turnout model to tell you that everyone in the whole country had a pretty high likelihood of, of voting uh, because it was just such a high salience election. Um, and we saw that in our turnout model, the average score of, of in our 2020 model nationally or in any state was higher than it typically ever is. It was one of the challenges we dealt with in, in 2018 is looking at, you know, differential partisan surges in turnout and trying to assess based on past elections and, and data, you know, okay, so are we, are we going to still see high Republican turnout, high Democratic turnout? In 22, obviously both will come down from the presidential highs, but I think that that's a lot of the work that we do. And, and one reason I think why we are particularly focused on doing multiple updates as more information is available on this sort of projection, because it is really challenging. And a lot of it is uh, remains to be seen as, as we dig into the data in, in 22. It may, may or may not become easier to get a representative sample as we go into 22. And then we really have to you know, there's there's no way I think personally to put a real projection on 24 at this point, because you know one of the things you see with doing the analytics is it, you know we all used past vote history to create uh, groups of people who are likely to vote or not likely to vote for uh, many years prior to having aggregated turnout models. That's still one of the most predictive factors. Is like have you voted in the past tells you the biggest thing about whether you're going to vote in the future. And so. And, and I think there's been some some research showing where, you know, once people vote, it creates a, a habit and a behavior that continues that forward. And so, but obviously not everybody votes in every single election cycle. And so looking at that differential is one of the key things, um, you know, Sean on our team here has a, spent a huge amount of his time over the years at Clarity is really trying to do our best to answer these exact questions. And that's what we're working on. We're starting to work now on our, our 22 projections and turnout model to, to help answer this question, but we're not, we're not there yet. Sometimes this argument shows up at a very important level in politics, which is the governing side, whether we want to take care of the base because it's a turnout game between the two parties. It's, it's not about persuasion anymore. Everybody's more or less fixed and we just need to, to make sure that our side votes at a higher rate versus we need to persuade the persuadable people and have more people on our side than because they've changed their minds. Has the world changed that we're so, we're so partisanized, we're so much in two camps that we just need to get people out or can people be persuaded still? I never like the sort of uh, all or, or nothing back and back and forth of, of that. There's a lot of oversimplification of the, the challenges. And I do think you you definitely see, you know, persuasion back and forth. I mean, you just look at the national election results over the past few cycles. People, you know, the bases are really polarized in a probably not particularly healthy way. But what you've actually seen is a number of people have swung back and forth and and you know, in in ways that us as, you know, Democrats and progressives have trouble seeing people who've voted for both Obama and, and Trump and, you know, voted for Democrats in the House races in 18 and maybe gone back the other way, unfortunately, for some of our less 
successful House results this last time in, in 20 and gone back the other way. But I, d- I do think you see people moving around based on the the candidate and the issue in the cycle and uh, in spite of the the polarization that we see. I mean, it does feel like the people who do panels and actually track an individual voter over time, they do see a lot of change, right? They do see people behaving individually a little bit randomly and then in aggregate a little more orderly or something like that. You definitely see changes in what people say over time. That's something that we've been trying to do, again, as as a point to address some of the challenges with response rates, some of the challenges of evolving technology in terms of reaching uh, voters um, in a couple key states, um, Florida notably, uh, this last cycle, we've been working with some different partners, building online panels, like building our own panel of people to, to talk to so that you can talk to them. Not, you know, in many ways that doesn't necessarily get you a more representative sample, but it lets you look at people, what they say at the beginning of the year and what they say at the end of the year and, and, and see any differences either because of movement or other reasons that they're answering things differently. And, and absolutely, I think that's a important thing to, to look at, particularly in the, the current environment. So Clarity as a company, how's it doing? What are your challenges? What's happening? Yeah, I think the, you know, we're, we're back in an off year ag- again this year, which, you know, we're very cyclical business as, you know, given the space. And, and so we do virtually no corporate work uh, at, at this point. Um, and so it's kind of a, a normal off year for us figuring out, you know, helping out on much smaller races, local races, that sort of thing. I, I'm really happy with uh, where we are now doing a bunch of uh, research, trying to invest in, you know, sort of improving our our work. So we're really happy about uh, where things are here. I'm really lucky to have uh, much of the same team sticking around with us for the uh, next cycle and, um, you know, trying to just get back into the, the space. I think the biggest challenges are the things that everybody else has had over the last year of, uh, you know, working remotely. I happen to be in the office today and figuring out, you know, what things are going to look like uh, next in terms of uh, work environments. But I think we've been, you know, pretty pretty happy about uh, how things are at, at the company, at least in our, our own little small world uh, here. So, What's the competition for your firm? Who else does what you do? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a small space. So I think we're friends with everybody we work with, even, you know, collaborate with with folks. I think sometimes the competition is, uh, you know, not not doing anything. So it's, you know, either not doing analytics in some cases. Sometimes it's, you know, that I mean, there's folks over at uh, uh, friends with people over at Blue Labs and, and Civis who do different things. I think we're all sort of have a different take on the world and focus on different uh Work. They they produce some similar voter contact models, but you know there's a there is a lot of work out there, and I, I don't there's people come at it from a lot of different angles, and so I kind of think of of our work in a little different vein than than any of the other folks out there. So I don't know that there's a a ton of um, direct competition on on some work on. Uh, but on, on other things, you know, there are lots of sources of voter contact models. And I think one of the things is, you know, do, do we need something 
custom for our particular race? And do we add value there? I think is something we always try to answer in any project we take on. Um, you know, you can create, uh, you know, take take like Colorado people, you know, I know your uh, original home state, um, you know, people vote a lot like their party registration and people vote a lot like the, the party model. And so adding a candidate specific model in Colorado sometimes doesn't really tell you anything different than you already know. And so I think one of the things we really pride ourselves on is, is trying to spend our clients' money in a way that gives them value. And so creating a really custom score in Colorado around candidate support doesn't give you nearly as much as it does in Michigan or Maine or Montana or someplace where you just have um, information that maybe diverges from the, the space. And so I think kind of using existing resources when to do custom, like that comes in into play a lot when someone's deciding whether, you know, we're the right fit for a project. Well, you have uh, made yourself into a successful political entrepreneur in the space and, you know, you got your own firm and, and a great niche, I think. What could you tell other people who would like to make their own organization? What, what are the lessons kind of that you've learned about uh, building enterprises in the political space? <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's probably the, the tough one. Um, be sure you actually want to do that. Uh, you know, I think that there are there are pluses and and minuses. I think the ability to work on a lot of different projects and is great, and the flexibility and and you know, kind of that is really cool. And but there's a lot of just administrative work that <laughs> that goes into it and and being successful. And so you know, wanting to balance why you know asking why. You want to do it, I think, is particularly important. I, I would say I didn't necessarily do that. It was more just there's an opportunity to do the type of work we want to do. And this seemed like the best choice. Um, I could see another world where, you know, we get the opportunity to do what we want, not at our, our own firm. And that would be that would be great. I think that the path made sense for us at the time. But but I think really, really thinking about why you want to do it is is important is it you know in our space if the answer is because you know you want to build a startup like everybody's doing in, in silicon valley i you know i that's not a motivating factor for for me it, it's more you know is this the best means to to do the type of work we want to do and be involved in the space i think is the most important factor and and what value you're you're adding not in the sense of literally, you know, sort of corporate value added structure, but are you filling a, a need in this, in this space? Cause it's small and, and people tend to look at politics as a place. Oh, there's a lot of money in politics. I've, I've, I've heard that from, you know, people who are working on the corporate side, but when you actually add the numbers up, it's not a, a place with this infinite market. And if you're just thinking of it from a business perspective, it's maybe not the, the right choice. We thought of it, I think, from the, what the work we want to do. And is this, you know, is this a way to, to do that work in a, in a helpful way toward the progressive and democratic space? And one thing you did differently than me is you founded it with partners. Yeah. What makes a good partner or partnership? <laughs> well, you can, you can ask uh, some, some of my partners and see if they give a, a, a different answer. I think that in our particular case, you know, we're really focused on 
doing consulting work. And, and that's a common business structure in the consulting world on the corporate side too. It, it's particularly easy for one, because, you know, we've, we've never taken investment money or anything like that. We're a small organization that, you know, s- survives and, and works on our, our clients. Um, How many people nowadays? We're, we run basically 10, we try to keep 10 as our minimal operation. And then we don't see ourselves as ever operating above 20, just because of the, our focus on doing campaign and, and political work. That's the size of the space. Yeah. Basically. I mean, yeah. for us at least in the, in the current space. Um, and so I think on the, you know, on the partner end, I think that, you know, that's really how we get, you get started is, is just uh, coming together with a, a set of like-minded people and, you know, realizing on the, we might not have much money when we're, we're getting started and we might not be paying ourselves. And so I think getting, uh, getting a set of people who are bought into that and, and, uh, is really, really key and, and complementary skills. I think that's the real thing. I mean, uh, you know, our current operations, myself, uh, Dan Castleman and Christina Sinclair. And, you know, I think we have a really good balance of, of skills. Um, you know, John Hagner on the team, uh, recently went out to, uh, manage a, a campaign, which has been, I think it's one of his life goals. So we were excited to, to see him do that. Ohio governor race. Yes, that's exactly right. So we're really, really excited for him. Um, And, but I think looking at all of us, you know, really different skill set, but that come together uh, is is really key. I mean, Dan runs our analytic operations and designs a lot of the technical tools and, you know, each of us have a different uh, perspective and set of skills. Is there a point along the way that was sort of an emotional high point for you for clarity or Clarity client, what sticks out for you? I mean, recently, I think the you know I'd be remiss not to say the uh, the Georgia races. I mean, we did a ton of Senate work this uh, year. Um, we'd worked with uh, Senator Asif on his um, uh, previous special house election, um, and obviously, really excited to see um, you know Senator. Warnock elected there. And so I think in recent times, that was probably a lot of people's high point, whether or not they worked on it, you know, we're really excited to have, you know, in a small piece been, been helpful to, to those races. Um, you know, overall, uh, thinking longer term, I think it's been coming into an off year, uh, maybe a, a couple of years ago and, and realizing selfishly for clarity itself that, uh, you know, we just had a lot of work going into an off year and, and that, you know, early on, and, you know, I still have a little of this, uh, periodically of, you know, like, okay, well, the election's done. What are we actually going to do here in the odd year? Do we have enough work to, to stay around? And I think, uh, a couple of years ago, realizing, uh, just how much work comes in, uh, and how, you know, what our team has done such a great job over the, the years that a lot of people really want to, uh, work with us on a number of different interesting projects over the course of the non-election year it was pretty cool, and and that's um that's I think the the clarity point that I would would highlight. Well, it's been really fun to track your progress over the years and and see that you're you know found such a great spot in the democratic ecosystem to do the work you do. So, um, is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? I don't know. I think this has been a, a pretty uh, wide ranging conversation here. So uh, I, I can't really think of it uh, at, at this point. Um, 
Yeah. Well, an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, I'm, I'm good here. Um, you know, I just well want to thank the whole Clarity team and, and all of our uh, clients for, um, you know, trusting us and working with us over the over the years and excited to go into the next election cycle in 22 here and, and improve on everything we've done over the past. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. That was David Radloff with Clarity Campaign Labs. He's at claritycampaigns.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.